All right, on today's show, you're not going to want to miss it uh, as we continue on going through United States Senate candidates uh, as well as gubernatorial challengers to get to know them. We've got a very special guest in studio with us, Mr. Lou Burdett, who's running to be the next governor of Alabama. As you know, our format is tell us your story and tell us why we should vote for you. Um, Lou's got an incredible story and you're not going to want to miss it. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson. I'm your host and the CEO of 1819 News, joined by my co-host, Ray Mellick, who's the editor-in-chief. Ray, how you doing? I'm good, Brian, and uh, excited about today's podcast as well as we keep giving uh, people a chance to get to know the candidates for public office. That's right. And for you audio listeners, you have no idea who it is. And for you video listeners, you might know who it is, uh, or video listeners, uh, wow, uh, video watchers. So... Um, but we have uh, a special guest in studio, uh, Lou Burdett, who is running uh, to be the next governor of the state of Alabama. Lou, thanks for joining us. Oh, Brian, thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, and before we jump into the exciting content that we have ready for you, we want to tell you how you can find us and how you can help us get to you. So um, Apple iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube is where you can find this podcast. Go there, uh, subscribe leave a five-star review, tell everybody how much you love us because we know that you do. Uh, that helps us get to you and you get to us so that any of these social media algorithms that are trying to thwart good news companies like ours, uh, that's how we bypass it. So we need you guys to do that. And also go to 1819news.com, sign up for the newsletter. That's uh, the really the best way to get our content is in your inbox at 745 every morning. Uh, so do that. And without further ado, we'll jump right in. So one of the things we've been doing is... Um, kind of, it's not really a candidate forum, or maybe it is, I don't know, but really get to know the candidates. And we want to serve our audience by uh, getting folks in studio and um, somewhat comfortable. Maybe one day our studio will be more comfortable. Leather couches, I can see it now, but we don't have it now. <laughs> um, but get you in studio um, and um, just ask you some questions, uh, you know, let people get to know who you are, uh, why people should vote for you. And so, as I always say, every time we do one of these, um, my background is in storytelling. Uh, I believe in the power of story, the, the power of story to, to move the human soul and also the power of story to see what kind of people are going to be. And I know um, you have a pretty incredible story. Um, my story has played a huge part in what's allowed me to get to here. And I said this before, but Elon Musk bases his hiring off of, he's like, I don't care if they have a college degree. I don't care about any of those things. I want to see uh, a past track record of achieving excellence and breaking barriers and doing amazing things. Because if people have historically done amazing things, they're not just going to stop the day you hire them. They're going to continue on that trajectory. And so to me, someone's story matters. And of the gubernatorial challenging candidates, I think you probably have the most interesting one. And so um, we would love to hear that. Well, Brian, I appreciate that. You know, um, God does give us a story. And uh, he gave me one when I was uh, 15 years old. Um, I grew up in a small East Alabama town called Roanoke and uh, about 40 miles from Auburn. And um, dad owned a small town grocery store. Grew up with a really strong work ethic. I was sacking groceries in my dad's store from, uh, I was so young that I could reach up and take the groceries off the counter, put them in the sacks, but the big boys would have to take them out. I was too small to uh, <laughs> take them out, but he taught me a strong work ethic. And I wouldn't give anything for that. Um, it's really helped shape who I am today, made me successful in business later on in life, just growing up at his feet and watching him never um, spend more than he made in any year of his life. I don't wow. think, you know, uh, just one of those guys that, that um, 
you know, just knew how to run a, a small business like that. And, and so I, that was how I grew up uh, working when the other kids were watching cartoons. I was well, work, working in my dad's grocery store. And when I was 15 years old, I was leaving my dad's stores two days after Christmas, uh, December 27, 1974. Crossed a dark back alley street behind my dad's store. And two guys approached me in the middle of the street, pulled a gun on me, forced me into their car at gunpoint, and off we went. And um, <clears throat> they uh, immediately began asking if um, my dad could get them or demanding that my dad get them $250,000 that night. Small town grocery store owner, 1974, $250,000. <laughs> That's a lot of money. And I knew this was not a good plan. Yeah. And um, we end up out really, truly in the middle of nowhere. It was the boondocks. Uh, Roanoke's already a rural area. Love growing up in a small town, small town values. I just wouldn't give anything in the world for that. And so we ended up down this dirt road, and uh, they ordered me out of the car at gunpoint. Uh, we walk off the road about 30 yards. Um, within a couple of minutes, they bash in the back of my head with the butt end of the gun. Huge crack, uh, blood gushing, fall to the ground. And then within a few more seconds, uh, one of the guy's hands just slams into my chest and immediately know that uh, uh been stabbed, feel this sharp, piercing pain, blood spilling out over my stomach, and I roll over. They stab me three more times in my back. And then uh, within a couple of more seconds, they start uh, dragging me, and I'm wondering, like, where are they dragging me to? Where are they dragging me to? And, um, and then all of a sudden, I'm falling. And I thought, well, maybe they've dumped me over a ledge or something. And but I keep falling. And what they've done is dumped me in an old timey water well. Um, and there was just a hole in the ground. And splash! I hit the bottom, thirty feet under the ground. And um, you know, at that point, I think, well, they're done. But then they start uh, dumping big, huge boulders on top of me. There was must have been like broken up pieces of foundation of maybe a home or something that was there before. And they were these huge chunks um, of broken uh, concrete and brick and mortar kind of things. And, um, and it was like a sledgehammer uh, pounding the back of my head and back with dead weight falling 30 feet under the ground. It was, it was excruciating. And what they said later, they were trying to cover me up. They were trying to cover up my body um, so that I couldn't be found. They shined in a flashlight on me. They could see that these boulders were dropping to the side in the water beside me. So then they began to shoot. They could tell I wasn't dead. They wanted to finish, um, finish the job. And, um, and uh, so they began to shoot. First shot misses, hits right between my legs. Second shot uh, misses, hits right beside me on my right side. And it was like this horrible game of Russian roulette. You know, you were just wondering, like, there's nowhere to go. You can't do dodge a bullet, right? Yeah, <laughs> and especially so, in a well. That's right. It was, it was like a rat in a barrel yeah. uh, for sure. And, um, you know, it's just a horrifying experience just to wonder, you know, which, which one. Third shot misses and the fourth uh, uh, bullet uh, did. It hit me in the back of the head right at the base of the skull, rattled around, hit my jawbone and lodged in my chin, and it's still there today. Uh, so I've, I've carried that bullet with me uh, for the last 47 years. Uh, so, um, and then they did leave me for dead. And... Um, and it, it, that was, uh, as a 15-year-old trying to wrap your head around an experience like that and be, um, you know, find yourself literally fighting for your life and life was emptying out of me, uh, that was, 
the emotions were hard to, uh, as a 15 year old to, um, to manage, um, you know, it was a horrifying experience. How, how could I be dying here in the bottom of this well when I just left my dad's door uh, a little while earlier to go on a date that night? Uh, so definitely in for the fight of my life. And, you know, we learned so much from life experiences. Amen. And, um, you know, one, one, one life lesson, lesson from the well, if you will, that I learned from this experience is, God made me a fighter uh, from that experience because I wanted to give up. It hurt too bad. I felt like it was impossible. I was scratching. I was clawing. I was pushing. I was pulling any way I could think of to get out, and there was just no way out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a long involved story. I'll, I'll break it off a, a, maybe a little bit. I'd say go into it. Tell us. <laughs> a little bit uh, shorter version. But, um, you know, it, there just was no way out. And, um, and so I'd put my – feet against one side and my back against the other and try to scoot you up and just nothing worked. And, and so I was so weak and so f close to death at this point, cause I was in the well for about two hours that I would slide under the water and, and lose consciousness, sort of get back conscious enough. And sometimes I, it was just my mouth, uh, out of the water just mm. so I could breathe. And, and this mud and muck was like quicksand. And so I would get mired up in it. And so when I would sink under like that, it was hard for me to get back up straight. And, and again, that's how close to death I was at that moment. And, and one of those times I was trying to get back up straight, my hand went in a hole and I was just praying like crazy, you know, God, just give me a way to, to get, get, you know, get up straight. And, and I thought, well, that's good, you know, cause I can hang on. And then I wondered why, you know, is there a way that I can get my foot in that hole? And I really didn't think there was cause it was, way above my head I was reaching up uh, and I just didn't think there was a way and I again just praying like crazy God give me a way to get my foot in, in that hole and he did and um, and also gave me the strength to climb out I mean th there was just no physical way it's, it's, it's hard for really me to understand people to understand to hear this story and say um, you know, I was that close to death. I couldn't even sit up straight. So it was his strength and in my weakness that that got me out of that well. There's just no other way to explain it. Even later, when I got to the hospital, the doctors gave me a five to ten percent chance just to live through the night. I mean, that's how close to to death I was. Even at that moment, it continued to lose blood, and so. I, as I had my foot in that one hole, uh, right foot in that one hole, I was just dangling and I was thinking, well, this is better than being down in that mud and muck and water. I don't know what I'm going to do now, but at least, uh, at least I'm braced against the side. And so I just started feeling and I felt a hole on one side and, and, and it was so contorted, like one hole would be way up on my left. I remember one was, I, I, I was just so contorted to get my foot in that left hole to, to get up and then just you know, praying God, give me the strength to, to, to even pull up, to get up straight again and sort of climb up. And, and that's the way I got out. I just continued to find these holes and feel my way out till I was able to crawl out the top of uh, that well and, and roll out the side and certainly was relieved uh, at that point to be out. But still my thought process was, well, I'm thankful to be out and I'll die here instead of in the bottom of the well. That was really my thought process because I knew I was in bad shape. I mean, yeah. you can't not be in, 
good shape being head cracked open, <laughs> shot and stabbed and thrown in the well and boulders jumped, uh, dumped on top of you. So I knew I was in bad shape. <clears throat> and, um, but again, just praying like crazy that, you know, God, I saw a shack, literally a sh- it was a shotgun house. If any of you uh, listeners have, have um, been in rural areas, a shotgun house is just a small, narrow, um, um, bareboard kind of uh, structure, and that's what this place was. And I had seen this house as we pulled off the the, um, the paved road onto this dirt road, and there were lights on and cars outside. And I was just saying, okay, God, you know, can you get me back up to this shack? Um, and so for the next two hours, so I was two hours in the, in the bottom of the well, two hours crawling a few inches and a few feet back up, um, uh, this dirt road, uh, to try, to try to make it to that shack. And I was in the ditch, um, after this long crawl and, um, and I just couldn't make it another inch. And, um, I thought, well, again, my thought process was, well, God, thank you for bringing me this far. I'll just die in the ditch right here. And um, at least somebody will find me. And uh, then I heard uh, a car coming, and it sounded like the car those guys were driving, boom, 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 because it had a loud muffler. And I was terrified and wondered, could that be those guys? Um, And so, again, just praying like crazy, God, give me a way to get up on that front porch. Because I had to go up a hill, uh, dirt, muddy hill, uh, and and up across this yard to the front door of the shack. And so I'm beating on it. And, uh, of course, you can imagine what I look like, uh, some drunk, drug-crazed lunatic, right? Mud, wet, you know, in in horrible shape. You know, I'm sure look horrible. Um, And... So when they opened the door, they were fearful. They tried to push me out, and I said, no, I've been shot and stabbed and thrown in a well, and and somebody tried to kill me. I need help. And I just fell in the door as they were closing on me, and I crawled in, and there was a potbelly stove against the left wall over there, and I just kept crawling, and that car was pulling up in the driveway. Boom, 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 boom. I could hear it. As soon as I crawled over in front of that potbelly stove to try to get warm, I was freezing and shaking uncontrollably. In walked those two guys right behind me as I crawled over. They wow. said later at the trial, they said they, they didn't believe it was me. They thought it was a ghost, L- yeah. literally. They couldn't imagine how I would have gotten out of that out of that well. Where I had crawled to was one of the guy's grandmothers. This, this was her house. Uh, the grandmother and the mom was there and family members. So what was going on is two days after Christmas, <laughs> uh, yeah. they were having a Friday night. They were having a family Christmas gathering uh, after Christmas, and there were 10 or 12 people there. There was an off-duty security guard from Atlanta that sort of took control of the situation, uh, began to get me help. When those two guys walked in, of course, I screamed, those are the guys that tried to kill me. I have no idea. This is family here. I just screamed, those are the guys that tried to kill me, and thankfully, I was so relieved when they turned and ran um, and left because all I could think was they're going to put me back in that yeah. well. Uh, and so that was definitely another terrifying wow. moment. Uh, this place was so remote, uh, Brian and Ray, that it took an ambulance two hours to find me. The first ambulance got lost, and uh, the second uh, finally got there. The county sheriff made it to this place before the Hamlets did, and um, including my parents. The the sheriff called my parents, knew them, because it's you know small town, yeah. small area. Um, everybody knows everybody, and um, the the sheriff actually called my parents and and told them what was going on. 
and um and my dad made it mom and dad both made it up there to this shack before the ambulance my dad went and found the ambulance to, to come and get me and i could hear this conversation going like we can't move him because he's gonna die you know he'll die if we move him and yeah. they, they didn't want to touch me and there was blood spurting out of my chest because uh, there was a puncture out a punctured lung and so you know when i would breathe it would uh, spurt some blood out and so you know i was again in bad shape but like i said when they got me to the hospital put me back together again best they could uh, they told my parents i had a five or ten percent chance to make it through the night that i just had a punctured lung uh, i'd have pneumonia i'd have all this infection i lost all this blood um severe shock i was just going to be too weak to survive but there was no infection no pneumonia and i was out of the hospital and less than two weeks and again just that kind of unexplainable god thing that um that truly doctors couldn't uh, explain i remember the doctor a couple of months later said hey lou we've been contacted i've been contacted by uab they want to study your file because they can't explain how you lived wow. and he sent my file to uab uh, had to get permission for me to do it and i said sure you know if it helps somebody else that's great unbelievable I don't even know how, where to go from there. <laughs> well, you know, it, like I said, what, it, it, so many life lessons from from that experience. But but God did teach me to because we all face a lot of obstacles in our yeah. life, right? Yeah, we've all experienced pain and suffering and disappointment, loss. Things haven't gone our way in life, but what do we do with it? And and how do we learn from it? How do we grow from it? Um, because we all have tragic things that happen to us in life, and and. You know, are we going to embrace it and let God uh, make us stronger? And He's made me stronger from this experience, and and I know He has uh, you as well, and and all of us, all the listeners, because we've all we all have that in common. We've all experienced that pain and suffering and disappointment, loss. Things don't go our way, uh, but we can learn and grow from them. And um, and that God has made me a fighter, and that's why I'm in this race. I just so dearly love this state that um, we just don't have to be at the bottom. And, and that's what motivated me. Uh, again, God put it on my heart in summer of, of 2020, Lou in 22. Lou in 22, somebody, there was a big uh, Republican gathering uh, Friday night uh, here in Birmingham, and somebody said, hey, you got the best slogan. Where'd it come from? Is some, some, because they asked, you know, like, it was that some big, you know, advertising firm that came up with Lou in 22? And I said, yeah, it's a pretty cool advertising firm. It was God. He put it on my heart yeah. summer of 2020, <laughs> Lou in 22. And, and, um, and so that's, that's, that is uh, what the campaign is known for. So, Lou, uh, let me ask you, you know, and we've, uh, again, stories like this, uh, there's really kind of two ways you can come out of it. And people that go through this, and I don't blame them, but they are uh, shattered. Uh, they, they're facing nightmares, uh, inability to function because of uh, PTSD, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you, and, and I asked Mike Durant this question, a different approach, and, and I understand both of them. That's remarkable. But what changed for you, or do you think that, it's almost like a second chance at life, if you will, and and everything from there on is sort of a bonus. How, how did that impact? And you went on business. We talked, you know, a books a million, right. your own store, King's Home, some of that things. How, how did that impact and change maybe the way you approach life after that incident? You know, I wish I could say that from that night in the well that I'd lived this perfect life. You know, <laughs> and and that's far from the case. I've, I've continued to learn a lot of life life lessons uh, along the way. Um, 
but you know, just the incredible lessons uh, from from that experience. You know, just to pure respect. You know, just to you know, those guys didn't respect me, and I learned. You know, let's just respect each other, and, and carrying that as part of this campaign. You know, we're not all going to agree on on every issue, but the governor has to be for all Alabamians, and so. You know, that's my message is I, I just so dearly want to serve all Alabamians and to respect and that we can sit down and, and have a dialogue together. We're not going to agree. Uh, I'm as conservative as they come, but I'm going to respect people's differences and different views and listen and and come up with the best solutions to move, move our state forward. And so that's definitely something that I learned from that experience. Definitely you know, again, learn, learn to be a fighter, that we're not going to give up. And people have told me, oh, Lou, you know, running for governor, you're a political unknown. Nobody's ever heard of you. Um, and I say, thank God I'm not a politician. That's what we need. We need someone with common sense business experience to go down there and just flip it upside down and, you know, let's, let, let's work for real change. And people tell me, Lou, I'm just so hungry for change in this state. Uh, I want to see something different. And so as a political outsider like me, I'm up for the challenge. You know, I, people told me, well, the, you know, the, it's, this is just too tall a mountain to climb. You know, you, you have no idea what's in, in front of you. And, and, you know, all I know is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay the course. I'm going to fight hard. And, and I know that when I get to Montgomery and governor, I know it's going to be even a bigger challenge, um, yeah. you know, to bring change. Because we had not had change my whole lifetime. I'm 62 years old. We've been at the bottom of the list my whole life. Just that we have great people, a great state, and it just doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, we completely agree with that. That's our kind of biggest push is we have the greatest state with the worst administration and worst legislature, right? I mean, it's crazy. If all they did was just mildly reflect the people, we would we would be winning all over the place. And so kind of, I don't know if it's poetically what I hear is that you have almost two more wells that you have to climb out of in a sense of getting your name out there <clears throat> in order for you to win. And then once you win, like you said, there's, it's quite, quite the, you know, road to hoe, as they say, to, to, to get us from being dead last into actually being competitive in our, in, in education and, and, and numerous other things. Yeah. Cause people have told me, they said, Lou, people in Montgomery, they don't want change. They, lo- yeah. they love it just the way it is. Cause they all got their little sphere of influence. They got all their little kingdoms of power down there. Oh, and that yeah. doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know any favors. Nobody's got influence over me. That's why I'm self-imposing a $10,000 limit. Another thing, Luke, you are so crazy. You know, but we have got to have campaign contribution transparency. We got money, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars flowing in from unknown PACs from all over everywhere. And all it does is buy influence and favor. We've had a legalized payoff system in Montgomery, and all that's got to change. And so I'm self-imposing a $10,000 limit because we got to change corrupt. We're the fourth most politically corrupt state in America. That is sad. Who wants to be in the same category with New York and anything? That's the only, that's the only list where we're at the top. <laughs> only yeah. list we're at the top is being the fourth most politically corrupt. And it's because money buys influence and favor. We got to stop that. And people say, Lou, you have no idea the firestorm that's about to come against you because everything you stand for is what they hate in Montgomery. They don't want change. They don't, you know, they want the money to flow. It buys influence and favors, you know, and, and, and even the current governor, she has received $5.3 million in donations, more than $10,000 since 2017, you know? And so 
do do you think that folks that give give any politician in Montgomery 50 100 to and I've had them tell me Lou I'd have given you a quarter of a million I'd have given you a hundred thousand not because they were buying any favor and influence because they they love what I stand for and the change that I want to bring and and you know but I said we we've got to take a stand uh we and 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 I'll lay out the challenge to the other candidates at forums gubernatorial forums you know, everybody ought to be limiting their campaign to ten thousand dollars crickets you know yeah. we got a lot of crickets in our commercials <laughs> and tiktoks don't we um you know but but it's got to stop that kind of that kind of favor and influence we're not going to we're not going to change a corrupt environment in Montgomery until we change, until we have those kind of meaningful changes uh, down there. Well, you're singing our mission statement here. Um, you know that was you know the reason for 1819 is um, we're seeing a lot of the same uh, issues as far as um, Montgomery being corrupt. We have these great people. The legislature doesn't reflect it. And the closer I've gotten to Montgomery, I come from national news, national media, national fundraising, national politics. Uh, in my career, and really, God laid it on my heart to start focusing local and trying to figure out how we do that. And uh, the idea and opportunity for eighteen nineteen came along. Um, to and the closer I get to Montgomery, the more rank and just, I mean, it's rank rancid. I mean, you can go on to a, a million other horrible adjectives of about what goes on down there. So, um, you know, it's it's nice to hear you talking about shaking that up. I will say. You have my favorite political ad of uh, of the campaign season, and I think you guys, I don't know if it was a couple of days you came out with it, um, and, and you probably didn't have to spend too much money on it either because you just took Kay Ivey's ad and chopped it up, and it was absolutely hilarious, and I'll try to see if I can get a link to it and put it in the show notes because yeah. it's it's hilarious. But <clears throat> um, talk to us. I mean, you, you, you've kind of laid it out there, but why why should we vote for you rather than some of the other contenders? I think that one of the biggest challenges that the contenders right now um, you know, the, the people who are challengers, um, you're the only one who's willing to challenge Kay Ivey right now. It seems like everyone else is like, Oh, she's nice. She's sweet. And it's like, yeah, then why are you running for governor? Like if she's that great and she's that nice and she's that sweet, why are you spending $2 million or $1 million or $5 million, whatever it is to try and get her out of there if she's great and no one wants to touch it. And you seem to be the only one that's, um, willing to, to, to take shots. Well, you know, and all I'm doing is just let's look at her record you know that's Amen. that's that's all i'm doing you, you, you know she, she wouldn't debate in 2018 um never talked about a tax increase I, I thought conservatives were supposed to be for less government and 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 not increase taxes well what did the first thing the governor did when she was inaugurated she worked strong-armed threatened i, I mean i've had testimonies from from folks in um uh, in 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 the House and Senate in in uh, Montgomery uh, on on the threats that they receive if they didn't pass this gas tax, and it, they went through with those threats too, and, and right? passed there's, the gas. First there's legislators that they were told if you vote no on this gas tax, you're going to get kicked off of your committee, and or well, or you'll never have that, a you'll yeah. never have a road paved in your county, yeah, or your area, yeah, your district. Um, you know that's just if if, if who in the listening audience is not for better roads and bridges. I'm for better roads and bridges, but not on the backs of Alabamians. There's got to be a way. And it just infuriates me to see these rebuild Alabama signs all over the state. It just infuriates me because if we had proper proper planning and vision to, to, to budget correctly, plan cor- correctly, 
then we wouldn't need to rebuild Alabama. Why are we rebuilding Alabama? Because we've had 40 and 50 years of neglect and mismanagement in Montgomery. And I just get so fired up about this stuff because it just, you know, common sense business experience. That's what I bring to Montgomery. That's what I will bring to Montgomery so that we don't find ourselves in, in desperate need of better roads and bridges. And what's our solution? Oh, well, let's just put a tax on all Alabamians because of our 40 years of mismanagement. Yeah. That just, I, I, we just can't accept that kind of poor leadership in Montgomery any longer and move this state forward. And so that's why I get so upset seeing those signs, rebuild Alabama. Oh, well, let's go tax every Alabama. 56% increase. And that was one of the uh, that was one of the items that you're referring to yeah. on, 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 on that spoof that we did uh, because I'm just calling out that, that immediately she raised gas taxes, 56%. And not only that, it's a forever tax. Now, what common sense is there to not only have a 56% increase in taxes, but then it's, it's going to be forever. It, it increases one cent every two years forever. What, yeah. what kind of common sense approach is that? None at all. So, so you know, kids and grandkids now that, that, are, that are young, they'll be paying 60, 70, 80 cents a gallon or more if we don't. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cap it, and then I'm going to work for change to see, okay, how can we roll that back and pay for roads and bridges in a more common sense way. And we got to budget better. We can't have 93% earmarking. I mean, and again, that's just special interest. That's just payoff system decade after decade where now we're up to 93% earmarking because every little special interest down there has carved out a piece of their pie out of that budget. And it's just wrong. We got to we got to redo all of our budgets, and that's part of what's wrong with education. You know, we can't budget right because you know everything's earmarked. And you know what? How do you run a business earmarking ninety three percent of your budget that you can't have any flexibility? Doesn't business change from year to year? Doesn't the state's business change from year to year, or at least decade to decade? And so, how can we budget correctly if ninety three percent of it's earmarked? Makes no sense. Lou, and, and uh, for people that don't know, you were uh, chief CFO, chief financial chief, officer. Chief operating officer. Operating officer for Books A Million. Yeah. Helped to take them public. I just want to get that out there so people understand the business right. background. Opened your own uh, uh, bookstores that you had Superstore, that's Super right. Store. Christian Superstore. <laughs> and then uh, and then the last 19 years as president of King's Home. That's right. And, uh, so you've had a unique experience there with women and children who have been in very tough situations or leaving difficult situations that has to, I would think, impact you as well and what you see. We've talked about education briefly. How do you see fixing or what's the start of just fixing the fact that we, we just were 52nd in math? We're in the, the low 40s and low 50s, almost everything across the board, in spite of record education budgets uh, every year going bigger and bigger. So spending money is not the answer. Spend, spend, spending it smartly is the answer. Um, you know, in, in changing the earmarks, uh, even within within the education budget. But it, it, I, I, I love my business background because that's, that's all I know. I just know how to approach things uh, from a planning point of view. Mm -hmm. Let's plan correctly. Let's have a vision for how to move this state forward, including education. That's got to be the top priority. And, and, I, and I was on a show yesterday, and they said, Hey, I don't hear anybody else talking about 
you know, policy kinds of things. How do we move Alabama forward? We're talking about fighting Washington. Yeah, I want to fight Washington too. It's crazy what's going on from up there, but we got so much to do here at home. Let's talk about how we're going to move Alabama forward. And yeah, we're going to fight Washington too. We're going to resist uh, all that, but we got to take our state forward. So let's talk about the issues. Let's talk about education. I mean, how do really, Ray, I mean, how do we be 52nd in math? How can we be so bad in these areas and have record budgets that we've had for the last three or four years and more money just flowing in than ever before. So why didn't we take some of this, uh, you know, COVID relief money that they spent $774 million? And we got a lot of needs in this state. But, you know, why didn't, we, why didn't we cap the gas tax then? Why didn't we repeal grocery taxes that would have helped all Alabamas? My dad owned a small-town grocery store. You know, we're one of only a couple of states that has a grocery tax, and that's that's punitive for every Alabama. Why don't we? Why don't we take that COVID relief? We've got a billion more dollars coming. Why don't we, you know, roll back the grocery tax and have no no tax on grocery in, in Alabama? We don't, we don't ever hear much about things like that. I think there's a bill right now for that. There's probably one every year, but it never gets passes. Mm-hmm. But Republicans control the governor's office and 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 the House and the Senate. So how how in the world can we not? pass common sense things like that that would have that would help all alabamians and and so you but ray we got to start with education um that's got to be the first party because we've done a decent job of bringing in jobs but i was up in huntsville last night and mazda needs 400 jobs yeah. and 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 good jobs fifty, sixty thousand dollar jobs and, and that they can't fill um and we can't fill them because folks can't read past third grade level Wow. And they can't and they can't do math. Um, and that's what Mayor Battle kept saying, you know, workforce development. We got to we got to educate. We got to train because we can't find enough uh, folks to fill these jobs because, you know, they're they're just so lacking in the area of education, especially just having basic reading skills to be able to fill out the application. Yeah. Let me share with you a um, it's one of the investigative reports we did recently. Um, it, hopefully you saw it. <clears throat> Um, the Alabama Education Association, right? Teachers Union, Teachers Association. Now, I guess if you want to be technical, but um, that 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 ran the state under Paul Hubbard, uh, who was you know Democrat, very far left leaning. Um, you know, Governor Riley comes in, you know, kind of seems to tear down that monster, and it, it and everyone says, well, it's just a show of what it used to be. It's just a show. You always hear that, and so we're like, okay, <clears throat> one of our um one of our uh, reporters here was just looking on the the lobbyist website. Uh, I don't know if it's the lobbyist website or website that has it where all the lobbyists have to register. And um, they have 44 lobbyists. AEA has 44 lobbyists down there. I think next is Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or Alabama Power with nine or, you know, they're like major lobbying groups. Like right. Huge lobbying groups have like nine, and then AEA has 44. Um, they are, um, and correct me on my language here because I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. This is why I keep Ray around to, to give me the actuals. <laughs> Um, but they are um, the largest contributor to Republican campaigns, I believe. Um, and I, I want to say it's like over the last year and a half or two years, or maybe a little bit more than that, $1.5 million going to Republican candidates. Um, school choice is polling at like 73% in favor. So 73% of Alabamians, left, right, black, white, rich, poor, right? 73% want school choice. They want to be able to make that choice. They want parents' choice, if you will. Um, and Del Marsh 
drew up probably one of the best pieces of, you know and, and, and speaking nice about Del Marsh is not something I feel impelled to do right and <laughs> but he did he in, introduced an incredible piece of legislation that hit every single point of school choice that you would hope it would have uh, and it's now being you know neutered and watered down into a nothing burger and that's what's happening and it's and, and it's got a, it's in large part because of, you know the AEA and these 44 lobbyists and their special interests right. so what would you do about that well, you, you, from what I understand, the original bill, if if the original bill had stayed in that form, it would have been a, a really fine bill. Oh, um, absolutely. But, it would have been, but, but we would have been not, leading. But it's not now. Yeah, leading in Alabama for the first time. So it's probably, you know, it's probably trash now because exactly what you just said. You, you know, I'm all for uh, a child's education savings account. I, I, I want that. I've always wanted that. And then parents really do have choice then, right? So I'm definitely in front of, uh, in, in favor of parents' choice, school choice. Uh, because, and and that's what I see every uh, day uh, at King's Home is we, we have seventy to eighty kids through um, so Alabama System Department of Human Resources at King's Home. So far behind in education, and a child's zip code should not determine their educational future. And and I see the devastating circumstances our kids have come from, and being in some of those zip codes where education is is so poor, and we need competition between schools. You know, um, you know, m- m- maybe if we had some healthy healthy competition between schools with school choice, then then maybe some of these poor systems would get better. Um, and if not, then then they need to change uh, uh, for sure. So we need a child's education account. I'm totally in favor of that. Give the money back to the parents and let them make the best choice for them. That, but, you know, school choice is such a small part of what we need in education. We need dual enrollment to help kids like at King's Home and so, so that, that, that they can have dual enrollment. We need to expand that statewide uh, to help in the vocational areas uh, and, and then come along and partner closer and, and budget right for our community colleges because our community colleges could be so instrumental in, tra- in, in, in even better training. They're doing a good job, but better training and just exploding this whole area of, of vocation. And, you know, uh, one of the owners of one of the largest electrical companies here in Birmingham said, Lou, I'm just, I am so desperate for electricians. They can make a hundred thousand dollars. Master electrician can make a whole lot more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, let's let's train and and have great careers not only for our kids but adults so that they can be retrained in workforce development. So partnerships like that, dual enrollment, beef up our community colleges to to retool and rethink how we're educating. So if I want to be an electrician or I want to be a welder or an EMT or something in in the medical field, all kind of great tech jobs. Let's let's use our community college system and train from day one. Not let them sit in a classroom for a year and get discouraged. There's nothing wrong with classwork in college. I'm all in. I'm not. But we, you know, let's let's also start welding from day one. Yeah. You know, so that they can get on with that career. And I think that is beginning to happen in the community college because they see that it's got to have hands-on from day yeah, one. Especially for boys. Keep them engaged. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I actually had worked for a manufacturing company, uh, one of my jobs, and, and we had agreements with junior colleges that they actually taught the, the skills needed to go work in this factory because they were so dependent on each other. And I just thought that was a brilliant way to do it was the school being very practical. And now with 
uh, automobile, as you said, they can't find workers, electricians, builders. Right. Uh, there's such a need for craftsmen that that's a great way. I, I want—I know we're getting close to the end. I do want to ask you this: um, the polls, for whatever they're worth, obviously uh, Governor Ivy continues to poll as one of the most popular governors in the country in this state, and the most recent polls the same way. And yet, there are so many people running against her. Um, do you think those polls are accurate, or what do you do to combat that uh, impression that she's just unbeatable at this point? Well, I think history has shown, especially recent history, that we can't depend a lot on polls, right? That's right. Um, and uh, I think um, uh, that's that was proven in 2016 in a pretty amazing way. Um, you know, it, if you go back and look last summer, some some polls had her in the approval rating in the 80s, right? Yeah. And so this more recent one is in the 50s. Uh, I saw one maybe 54, 55, 56. That's a, that's a serious drop, 30 points in six, seven months. Sure. So, so um, I think that, that's indicative of Alabamians, I'm hungry for change. I want something different. It was never meant to be a lifetime job, was it? It was, you know, and when I'm governor, we're going to work for term limits. I'm going to get that fast if it's if it's the last thing I do because it just was never meant to be a lifetime job. I am so thankful for my career in business. I'm so thankful for 13 years at Books and Me and where I learned, you know, a, a business and growing uh, 250 uh, jobs to over 3,000. Opening uh, our first books of me in, in, in Huntsville, Alabama, with the first store in 1987. And when I left, we had 106 stores and doing $250 million in volume. Being part of a growth like that. And same at King's Home, just being able to, uh, to serve more youth and moms and kids. So, um, you know, we need that kind of common sense business uh, experience in, in Montgomery. And, um, and that's what I want to bring. The polls... You know, I guess at this point, the question is, how, 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 how far is she going to fall? Um, <laughs> you, you know, because in, in, in another month or two, um, is that decline going to continue? And um, I see what's happening on social media. It's no secret. Anybody can go and look and see what, what's happening in Lewin 22. Check me out, Lewin22.com, uh, on social media, on all the platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, it's it's amazing the grassroots effort uh, that is pouring into Lou in 22. People just hungry to see, oh, this person's different. He's a complete outsider. My name's never been on a ballot. Uh, I'm not riding on anybody's coattails. I'm Lou Burdett. I'm running for governor of Alabama for all Alabamas to move Alabama forward. So you don't hear me talking about this person or that person or I, I think like this one or I, I – I am for all Alabamians to move this uh, state forward. And so I think, I think the polls are going to show, uh, for me, probably later on, mm-hmm. end of March and April, because, you know, this grassroots effort. It's got to build. Sure. It's got to build. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we're definitely bumping up on our, on our time limit. I'm sure you guys got plenty of campaign trailing out to do ahead of you. So, um, but really pleased, really grateful that you came on. Such an incredible story. Um, love what you're doing as far as actually, um, you know, running, running against, if, if you're challenging Thanks. an incumbent, you know, you, you, you're the only one with the courage to do it so far. So um, well, I always say, you know, we we you outlined at the very beginning where, how we're last in all these different er, uh, areas in Alabama. We dearly love our football. Don't we? Yeah. If our coaches performed like our politicians in Montgomery, would our coaches have a job at the end of the season? Not at the end of week one. I mean, (laughs) this state would be in such an uproar. 
I mean, we would be coming apart if that was happening for our football teams. So why do we tolerate it in Montgomery? we got to have change. And I will end with this note because I think it's a really good point. One of their, their strategies for defense in Montgomery is the moment that you begin to look in Montgomery and see what's going on is they point to Joe Biden, they point to Justin Trudeau, they point to California, they point at Democrats, and they, they, they distract you with, with federal national politics because they right. don't want you to see what's going on in the state. And, Amen. And that's how they get away with not getting fired like a, a football coach would. So um, thanks for coming on. And, um, guys, I again, want to tell you, go um, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, go there, five-star review, um, subscribe, tell everybody about us, tell your friends um, so uh, we can continue to grow uh, and get this great, great stories and great news out to you guys. Until next time.